1: provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. You love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome to Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. This is a special episode. You know me, Corey Nathan, I'm your host, and I am joined by our special co-host, Jessica the Reporter Stone. (laughs) Jessica, as you'll remember, is a 20-year veteran of local, national, and international newsrooms, where she's covered the intersection of politics and business around the world. Her work has appeared in Yahoo Finance, USA Today, South China Morning Post, and Stansbury Research, and she's appeared on Fox and CBS Radio and Television. Jessica, so cool to see you again, and so awesome of you to join our team. How are you doing?
0: It's great to be here. It's great to meet your dad face to face. Of course, I listened to his uh, podcast with you and just, uh, I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm falling in love with the whole Nathan family. What can I tell you?
2: I feel like we have more of
0: you to meet, but we'll,
2: we'll invite <laughs> you to the Seder next year. Yeah, that would yeah. be
0: great. That would be great.
1: <laughs> next year, next year next in Santa year Clarita.
0: In, <laughs> in Santa Clarita. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, it'd be closer. If we say next year in Brooklyn, but there anyways, go.
1: there you go. Uh, And we're co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. And as always, please hit that subscribe button and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a shout on Facebook, Twitter, IG, and LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. And today's guest, which is kind of, uh, you know, we're what is it, a bait and switch? Well, (laughs) I'll just say our other co-host and my dear old dad, Ronnie Nathan, we thought it would be fun to mix things up a bit have a major league journalist join us take this thing to a whole other level and finally bring some tough questions to the old man (laughs) Uh, now we might learn a bit more about ronnie's background my dad's background and points of view we might get into some politics and religion i mean that's what we do we'll just see where things go from here and hopefully have some fun Pops, thanks for joining us and putting up with us it's an honor to have you as always jessica take it away
0: i would love to hear the story of how you first became aware of your first name and first of all we should start with what is your first name is it ronnie
2: no my legal first name is hyman my name is hyman ronald nathan i never knew my name was hyman until i got to school and my first day of school uh, was first grade uh back then because i'm at the beginning of the baby boomers Uh, they didn't have room for me in kindergarten and they wouldn't let me in. So I started school as a first grader and um, they never called my name. And I sat at my desk crying because they never (laughs) called my name. And Mrs. Moran came up to me and said, you know, what's going on? I said, you never called my name. And she said, well, who are you? And I said, I'm Ronnie Nathan. She said, no, your name is Hyman.
0: <laughs> That's when you found out. At you never that know. moment,
2: and yeah, wow. um,
0: how how could your parents like hold out on you like I that? I don't think they held
2: out on me. I, was, I mean, we were all named after the same grandfather who had died in nineteen thirty nine forty, and he was apparently a great man. Everybody loved him, so every male who was born in my generation carries his name.
1: Did you know what your uh, Hebrew name was, Dad?
2: Chaim Rubin. Oh
1: yeah, sure. Yeah, Chaim Rubin. So you knew Chaim Rubin, but you didn't connect it to your first name, to your uh, American name. I, I never
2: thought about it, really. I was Ronnie. Everybody called me Ronnie. That's who I was. And suddenly I became Hyman. And um, that had a really big impact on my life. And I could always tell from the first week of school who my good teachers were and who my bad teachers were. Because the good teachers would call me Ronnie. And... Uh, that's the story of the name.
0: I have to ask you. You talked about the the sort of um, um, grouping of of a lot of people growing up together in the apartment. Did did every family have its own bathroom? We. Or did you have, Or did you? Did the building have bathrooms on different no, floors? No, we, we had a bathroom
2: shared? in each apartment.
0: Because there's a story, and I don't know if you've ever read it: the carp in the bathtub. I, I this hope is a it's a story about, gef- about a woman who yeah. filled the yeah. fish, and she gets she makes it so fresh that she gets the carp fresh. Everybody else is, is buying dead carp. She gets the, the the fish alive and keeps it alive in the bath.
2: That was a very common practice when I was a kid. Lots of people did that.
0: Did no. you do that?
2: My grandmother worked. <laughs> we were too busy working, <laughs> but we did get live chickens every Friday at the chicken market. Oh, sure. Really? and uh, i had the distinct pleasure of watching the shochet kosher slaughter the chicken and pluck the chicken
0: you feel like they 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 felt happy in their final moments the chickens
2: i never thought yeah. about their emotional state of being as they were being killed
0: <laughs> isn't that isn't that the, but isn't that the principle of a kosher butcher that you're 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 having a kind end to these animals lives
2: all of the laws relating to kosher slaughter have to do with kindness to animals um you know slitting the um the throat in such a way with a very sharp knife so that death is instant and painless Mm -hmm. um i'm not sure anyone thinks about what the animal is thinking of as the knife is going across his throat I never thought about Except it. I'll have to think. Uh, you know, I'll have to think about that.
0: The PETA members of the Nathan family—they're thinking about it. So it's, it's all—you just
2: all made me connected. into a vegetarian.
1: <laughs> Don't worry, Dad.
0: I, hey, I did it for twenty-four years, and it was all because of chickens. That's a whole nother kettle Emerson of fish. Emerson uh, and
1: I are reading I, *The Problem of Pain*—C.S. Lewis's book—right now together. Uh-huh. Reading and and I'm at the point where C.S. Lewis is making the case—a pretty erudite case—for why dogs go to heaven. <laughs> so, but that's.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That I'll have to hear more about that theological yeah. point but of view. A, 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 only like if they're circumcised, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> Ronnie, you're you're in first grade. You're having all these uh, feelings about your name. Do you feel like you grew up uh, as a person that kind of had a good sense of self, or did you have a lot of baggage from from that incident and and maybe some others? It sounds like there was a lot of complexity.
2: I was the youngest person in the house. Um, the, and I'm a, I'm a boy and being the baby boy in a Jewish family is a very privileged position to be in. Everybody loves you. Everybody nurtures you, but you're not supposed to make waves. Your job Mm. is to be a good boy and make everybody else happy. And, um, I'm very grateful for that because that's kind of like to find my life. And it's not a bad place to be everybody loving you and you trying to make everybody else happy. It, it, it's not
1: a bad prescription for living a good life. Your role as a um, joyful servant leader of, of the family, I think is a pretty good description. Uh, and the fact that everybody loves you, <laughs> you know, despite you being a pain in the ass, (laughs) tits at times. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's accurate.
0: So one of the things I'm curious about for you, Ronnie, is what it was like to grow up in Brooklyn in terms of race relations. I know that, that race relations going into the sixties were pretty hot times. Can you kind of fast forward a little bit and talk about your observations going into that period? You would have been in your, or late teens, early 20s by then?
2: The, the the world I grew up in was all Jewish and Italian, mostly Italian. Um, I grew up in Bensonhurst in Brooklyn, so it's mostly Italian, maybe a third Jewish. Um, the only people in the world that I knew that existed were Jews, Italians, and when you hit the trains, the BMT, Puerto Ricans, and black people. Um as I grew up and came into my own, um, you know, the civil rights movement was hot and heavy. As a Jew, I identified with that because I grew up in the shadow of the Holocaust. You couldn't be Jewish. I'm a first generation American. My mother was born in in in, in Russia. She escaped pogroms. The whole maternal family came here exactly a hundred years ago last month. Um, And we lost people in the Holocaust. So the Holocaust was like real to me, still is. Um, But that drew me to have great empathy uh, with the civil rights movement of the early 60s. Um, And then my father, um, when he left the store became an insurance salesman in Bed-Stuy and his whole clientele was black. Um, and I had the experience of, of meeting his clients and, 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 and going with him and uh, I, I even did business. I had a photography business at, at a certain point and took pictures in the black community. Um, so for the first time in my life, I was introduced to black people on an individual level, um, and it struck me that the way they lived in Brooklyn, you know, wasn't that much different than the, seg- the segregation in the South. It struck me that that, mm. that that we had the same kind of issues; they just weren't explicit. We pretended that we weren't living in an apartheid society, but we did. Um, I had the-
0: well, there was there were different parts of town. I mean, people didn't really integrate, right? You would have had. You said you had you didn't really see blacks and Puerto Ricans until you went on the train, right?
2: Exactly. Then later on, I got a job um, in a predominantly minority high school, and. Um, I stopped relating to black people as black people and started relating to them as, as individuals. Um, And I, 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 you know, basically that, that, that's how I am today. I mean, I'm still in touch with many of the kids who are now in their fifties that I counseled back in the eighties when they were in high school.
0: Mm -hmm. What do you think made that turn for you? Just familiarity or what was the, was there a catalyst there?
2: I've always identified with with the underdog because I was an underdog. I mean, I was a a, a, a short Jewish kid playing ball in an Italian schoolyard for most of my childhood. And um, learning to stick up for myself, earning respect without creating conflict or escalating conflict um, gave me an insight into how other people who are discriminated against and persecuted must feel and strategies for dealing with that place in life and that also stood me in good stead my whole life I mean I went into a career that required those skills And required me to be able to teach them to other people. Um, And that's, that's really been a a gift. And I'm very grateful for that.
0: So when Martin Luther King Jr. comes on the scene, did, did the message of nonviolence resonate with you or did you feel like something more, um, more needed to be done, something more forceful?
2: That's a great question. I, I, you know, I think all of us were kind of innocent up until uh, JFK was killed. Um, once the president was killed and Malcolm X came on the scene and all that stuff started to happen in Vietnam, I think my generation, at least I did, come came to the realization that nonviolence is great when you're dealing with people who have values who i mean you you can't you can't nonviolence wouldn't have worked in germany in 1933 for jews so there's a you know so it, it it has a certain limit i mean i think at a certain point you have to respect the fact that people get angry and are going to act out of anger
0: so how does that shape what you think about what's going on now, because I think we're safe to say we're at, we're, we're witnessing that over the last, let's say, year to 18 months that so we've got. We've certainly seen with the lockdown and the riots of last summer that there is so much pent up frustration. It's people are not taking the nonviolent route.
2: What What I learned as a guidance counselor and assistant principal in predominantly black and Latino high schools in New York City through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, Um, is that when people have a legitimate reason for being angry, you have to give them, you don't have to, but the best strategy is to give them an outlet to express that anger and not just an outlet to express it, but an outlet to express it in a venue where they feel they're being heard and they're making a difference. If you don't do that, they will become violent. Um, If you give them a legitimate venue for making a difference and being heard and respected, that lowers the probability of violence, in my opinion. Um, I think what we're doing today and the mistake that conservatives as a group make is demonizing the protesters in the name of protecting society from looting. I, th- you know, I, I think if as a society we um, legitimized protesting Um, legitimized what they're protesting against and brought them into the um, decision-making, made them stakeholders in in preventing violence, um, I think that would be much better than, more successful in preventing violence than demonizing it and saying, oh, these protesters, bl." Black Lives Matter. You know they're, they're, they're criminals. They're looting. This to me that's a better way.
0: Well, let me drill down on that because I wonder what what is the best way to give them that outlet. They're not getting it in Congress. They're not getting it at the state house. We haven't seen significant reforms in extra, uh, you know, p- police, police on, uh, victim crimes. Um, we've, we've seen some police department efforts to address that, but we haven't seen any large legislation pass. Um, so where do you suggest they find that outlet? Um, and then conversely, do, do people that criticize the violence not have a point?
2: No, they, they had the abs- absolutely to have a point. Absolutely have a point. Um, let me, let me address that on two levels. The first level is, believe it or not, I'm kind of optimistic and I'll tell you why. Because I think the best things that happen in society don't happen in Congress or legislatures. What I see happening right now is all of this protest and all of this violence is beginning to create an infrastructure that holds police accountable for excessive violence. Every time there's a cell phone recording of something terrible happening, uh, you know, the, the, uh, it gets tremendous coverage in the news. Uh, black leaders end up in Minneapolis.
0: Oh wait! Well, we don't know that every single cell phone video of every single—it's certainly
2: hitting the news often enough to get police to wake up and say, "We got to do something about this. We have to do something about this." I think there's an infrastructure developing without legislation that's bringing attention to police accountability,
1: like Dr. Errol Souther's uh, Lewis Registry, that has been instituted from from what I've I've seen. Um, as, as a policy. The Lewis Registry, Jessica, is, uh, it tracks with, you know, a, as we all understand, a vast, vast majority of law enforcement officers are serving our communities and our country uh, well and admirably. It's the very, very small minority who are, you know, you, you know, who, who behave in misconduct that are giving police a worse name than, than they deserve. But it, it's been hard to this point to uh, track the bad actors from one police force to another. Uh, the Lewis Registry tracks these things. Uh, Dr. L. Southers mm-hmm. is a you know lifelong law enforcement officer at serving at every level, literally from dog catcher to the highest levels of federal. Um, and he's been a proponent of the Lewis registry. So yeah, that, I mean, that's just one example where there is, but I mean, even,
2: even I'm like, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Al Sharpton, but the fact that Al Sharpton shows up all over the country and exploits these situations is kind of forcing the system to deal with it instead of closing our eyes and not dealing with it. Um, I had a job for about four and a half, five years, as a crisis response coordinator for 23 high schools when there was a riot, uh, a race riot or a gang conflict or a murder in a high school in New York. Between uh, 1991 and 1995, um, in my 23 high schools, I was called in to, with my team to stabilize the school Deal with the crisis and then stay there and do the work necessary to prevent it from happening again. Um, and I, I became the trained mediator, uh, and I often mediated disputes between people who had been killing each other or trying to kill each other, and, and and driving the school into chaos. And the first step, my first goal wasn't to resolve whatever issue there was between these two groups my first goal was just to get them to talk to each other and the second goal was to empower the leadership to find the strength and skill to stop listening to the knuckleheads and defending them when they were driving the group to extreme behaviors. That was what the mediation was about. Once we could do that, we would be able to, to resolve or at least control the issue that led to the explosion. Um, when I became-
0: What was the longest it ever took for you oh, to Well, I was get? in
2: mediations that took a week or more. I mean, we had-, we had me-
0: I mean, the period of time from when you started to when you actually got them to speak to each other. What was the longest amount of time? Um,
2: usually, I mean, it's going to sound funny, but it's true. Usually uh, about about four and a half hours. Of course, you start the mediation in the morning and the kids would be angry. But when it was time to either eat lunch or go home, they were very quick to start talking to each other. <laughs> so so, that, so that, 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 you know, you have to when you're doing stuff like this, you have to think about all these things, you know, are people hungry, do they have to go to the bathroom, do they, you know? Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, it's kind of like, like Congress can solve a problem when they're at the 11th hour, you know, and, 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 and the cliff is about to. I
0: would argue, I would argue not even then. They find but- the band aid. <laughs> But maybe yeah, then. but I, you know, all of a sudden, stuff started
2: to happen at two thirty in the afternoon in the first mediation. That that was that was pretty typical. When I became an assistant mm-hmm. principal in a school that, um, I would say at least fifty to sixty percent of the boys were gang involved in the school where I became an assistant principal, and I, 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 um, they had a lot of trouble in the school with graffiti and gang issues and all kinds of stuff. One of the things that I did, well, two of the things. I started a peer mediation program.
0: What years were these,
2: Ronnie? I was in the 90s. It was, yeah, it was after the crack hit the streets in New York. Schools became pretty violent after that in New York City. I, I, I created this peer mediation program where I trained kids to mediate disputes between other kids. But the kids that i trained to be peer mediators were the gang leaders why number one they're very good at this stuff if they learn the skills number two
0: and they have respect right
2: well first you give them respect and then they kid, kids are great i mean kids kids if you give kids respect they give you respect right back 90 percent of them but
0: they have respect from their peers oh, sure yeah but
2: also it did something else it brought kids who were alienated from the school community into the school community. It gave them a stake in keeping peace in the school. The kids who were the leaders of the most violent people in the building had a stake in controlling that. You know, they, they started to accept the school as their place. The second thing I did was I started a council that I met with as an assistant principal every week of these same kids who were the gang leaders and they had to talk to each other and we would talk about what's going on uh who's angry are there any problems coming up what's going on in the neighborhood and they would be talking to each other
0: we are taping this right now during the Derek Chauvin trial and we just had another um, mass shooting in Indianapolis. Um, how, how are these trials hitting you? Do, do you see it places where we've made strides? Um, do you think that, uh, do, do you see progress? Are you hopeful still as you earlier said about race relations in this country? Because we really are at a f- fever pitch point you know, where there's still a lot of places where I'm still learning about things that happened in our country's past that I didn't know about, particularly in the case of taking property from African-Americans within the last hundred years um, and the kinds of the, the legacy that le- that left other families. I mean, you may you'd probably just read this in your local paper, Corey, the Manhattan Beach, the the um, Manhattan Beach just gave back a, p- a piece of beach to a black family that had it had been taken from them in the 20s.
1: Yeah. I no, I hadn't read it, but yeah, that's
0: um and so you've got this whole dialogue going on, but I I guess f- where I sit here in Washington, I find it um I don't find that we have any cool heads talking about it. It's very, very much all or nothing, my way or or no way. And I just have to believe that not everybody is in that space, but I know there's a lot of anger out there and I haven't lived the same experience as my black brothers and sisters. So I'm not an expert and I, I do wanna learn, um, but I don't know if, if um, going back to my earlier question, Ronnie, if you, how, how this is hitting you, uh, the Derek Chauvin trial in particular.
2: Um, I, I think The the Chauvin trial happening at the same time as the Dante Wright murder um, is giving us an opportunity to really look carefully at the relationship between police and minority communities in a nuanced way. the Chauvin case was so glaringly obvious that it didn't, challenge, it didn't challenge me. I mean, the guy should be locked up and put away, and he murdered the guy. I mean, it's as simple as that, and all the other stuff is bullshit. Um, but Potter, that, that looks like it was really an accident. Um, an excusable accident for an experienced police officer, But I don't think she woke up that morning with the intention of um, abusing a black person. Um, At least not based on the videos that we've seen. So now we have to reckon with the fact that we need police officers who are going to make mistakes. You know, I've been in violent situations. I've had guns pointed at me and I can tell you that. The first few times that happens to you, you can't predict what your reaction is going to be. You don't know. You really don't know. And you can make a decision that will change your life in a heartbeat that you regret, that if you had a cooler head, you'd never make. But that's the situation we put police in every single day. So we need police. And good police officers are going to make terrible mistakes sometimes. We have to learn how to hold people police accountable on a continuum of responsibility. What Chauvin did was gross, and he intended to do it. Whether he intended to kill the guy or not, he intended to exact incredible pain and humiliation on this black man. Um, I don't know if he did it because he was black, but Chauvin definitely...
0: Well, they had a prior relationship. Well, I mean, I don't
2: want to go into all the details, but I I think he is a racist, but that's just me. I'm not going to, you know. I think, you know, I think we have to respect that continuum. And there has to be accountability for mistakes. But it's, you know, it's different than what Chauvin did. And I think this is an opportunity for us to look at this issue in a much more nuanced way and come up with solutions even if it doesn't come from legislatures, but come up with solutions at the grassroots level. Um,
0: well, one of the things I've seen actually is just a call to arms um, by blacks to whites, saying if you see a confrontation between a white police officer and a black person, or just a conversation, hang around a little longer now, and and be prepared to you know to, to stick up for your. For, for somebody. I don't think any, nobody I know is, is even watching out for each other at that level. <laughs> I think that demands a real understanding that we are a brother's keeper. So I, I don't know if we're culturally going to go there, but that was an interesting grassroots suggestion.
2: Well, you know, body cameras and um, everybody having a cell phone um, makes that possible without having to put yourself in danger, right? I mean, we have a record of Chauvin because 10 years ago, we wouldn't have known what happened. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So that's a good thing.
0: What do you think, Corey?
1: Well, I want to, again, remember that someone like Derek Chauvin is the exception to the rule. It's always important to keep that in mind. I
0: I'm not asking for your you to be judge and jury. I'm just curious if, if you feel like you've seen anything come out of it that's that strikes you as I think
1: I, I have been paying attention to the trial. Uh, this The prosecution had a very, very strong case. What the defense was able to put up, there, there were certain witnesses that the defense put up that if you walked away and then saw the prosecution's cross-examination, some of the witnesses that the defense put up, if you walked away and just saw the def- defense's, or excuse me, the prosecution's cross-examination, you would think that that was their witness. There were a couple of witnesses that really broke, mm. broke down. But mm. I, I mean, to, to, to most objective observers, this really is a black and white case, but there were other really egregious black and white cases that, that ended up in a hung jury that, yeah, you know, it just takes one. It, it, it is a jury, you know, and it just takes one person who their conscience just can't bring them to convict. You know, it also depends on the charges. The charges are second degree, th- second degree mur- murder, third degree murder and manslaughter. Um, and, and they're defined subtly differently in each state, which, by the way, a really good resource. Uh, there was um, an advisory opinion. Sarah Isger and David French have a really good resource for non lawyers as well as for lawyers. Mm. Uh, It's a great podcast and a lot of the most contemporary um, legal cases. It's so informative. Um, So that's a really good resource for me. But they. um, In fact, I I think their most recent episode, they break down the trial and their their views on the trial in in great detail. Um, So. Yeah, I mean, I think that the prosecution made a great case. The defense had a, a relatively weak to moderate at best case, but I, I man.
0: It does man, come down to the it jury. Really does.
1: It really does. And I, yeah. I fear for that region. I fear for the country. If there isn't some sort of conviction, I, I, I it would be hard to imagine that there isn't at least a conviction on manslaughter. Um, mm-hmm. You know, believe it or not, I think as I learned, the differences between second and third degree murder, I think there's a better chance of conviction on second degree murder than third degree murder, just because of some of the ways that third degree murder is defined. Um, and ironically, hmm. it's a, the, 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 uh, the penalties are, are essentially the same thing. But yeah, I, I think there needs to be one of the two murder convictions uh, to avoid some serious, serious um, fallout, you know. Uh, you, uh,
2: the consequences of the verdict should not affect the verdict. It shouldn't, but... And, you know, it shouldn't. I mean, and, and and the guy should be judged based on what he did, not on what the reactions of the public will be to the verdict. Um, that said, I mean, I think the evidence is overwhelming. This guy intended to inflict pain on George Floyd, that was his intention i mean it, it it seems pretty clear from the video um
1: i, I also I, it also appears and this is more of just uh, i think the potter case is more difficult well it, i the, what i was going to say about chauvin was this is more sociological kind of human behavior observational is that at least those last three to four minutes was chauvin asserting his authority asserting his his, his will almost in a performative manner for, for the people who had gathered around him, basically saying, Mm. you know, excuse the expression, but I'm the big swinging Dick and you can't do anything about it. You know, that, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so I, I, sorry to be so coarse about it, but that, you can't watch that video without just as a, as an observer of human behavior. I don't know how you could draw any other conclusion. And that's not good policing I have, some of my really really dear friends are right here in this town are you know 25 30 year law enforcement officers at, at different levels um, you know and it, it grieves them when they see this kind of behavior just but we were talk- on a different level we were talking about teachers every teacher in the school know who yeah. know who the bad teachers are it grieves them because right. they're devoting their lives to to keeping our community safe. And here you got folks that that are abusing the, the 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 their 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 position because they're wearing a gun and and, and have have a badge. And, and it makes their job harder. It makes my friend it, you know, it makes my friends jobs harder when when they see this.
0: Do you think you got more or less hopeful during COVID-19? I mean, we're we're you you want you you know some of the underbelly of your own community during this season. If you pile COVID-19 on top of that and the isolation and the lockdown, um, any thoughts there? I, I don't
2: think we'll know for another five years.
0: What what age groups of kids do you think were most adversely affected by the lockdown from what, from your, just from your educational background? Because I think it's the youngest that probably lost the most learning, for example. And, and
2: the kids who were most behind before the crisis.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: You know what, what um, improving the education system and making schools better isn't rocket science. It, it really is.
0: Seems to it, be, we haven't been able to do it. it
2: it's well, we can't, we, we can't,
0: we can't, <laughs> we still don't have better outcomes than other countries. We can
2: do it. What we need is teachers who really care about kids and who know, and who know how to teach and have smaller class sizes so that every kid can get individual attention from a loving, nurturing, responsible adult who has high expectations of that kid.
1: Dad, this is this is a a sticking point. The it seems that the unions, the teachers unions largely are getting in the way of quality teaching, frankly. It, it seems that the 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 existence of the unions or the perpetuation of the teachers unions uh is is there to protect an average you know the 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 whole which includes bad teachers I, i don't know maybe i'm not articulating it well but it seems like i mean eddie taught uncle jerry taught you and mom taught you you were in schools for 35 years plus uh and everybody knew who the bad teachers were this is you know eddie Eddie experienced this at charter school level, public school level, you know, just, who, just who's recently, this Eddie
2: person you're talking about?
1: My brother, my brother. Oh, Eddie. Okay.
2: Just wanted to make sure. He was
1: the talking. most educated truck driver now because he, you know, he got so frustrated with the education. This part of what he was so frustrated with the education system uh, is that everybody knew yeah. who the bad teachers were, but because the un- the unions are there to protect every teacher, including bad teachers you know it, it 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 seems that there's uh disincentives to uh to create structures that reward good teachers um uh, to get rid of bad teachers I, I don't know you could you talk to some of this speak speak to some of this you're you're more informed on it than i am well the you know it it's the best
2: of times and the worst of times kind of thing the unions were great I'm going to start my next book that way, by the way. Yeah, I think it's already been used. <laughs> it's so
0: original. Yeah. Uh,
2: you know, the, un- the unions are great, were great at getting um, good compensation for teachers. They were great at um, controlling class size, uh, getting benefits for people who deserve benefits, but they're awful in terms of protecting mediocrity. Um, even incompetence. But what I think is demonizing unions is the easy way out. It's not just the unions, it's the whole system. It's the fact that, look, maybe it's changed now because I I don't know what a smart board is. I've heard the term, but I have no idea what it is. But, you know, uh, when I was working, schools were organized like factories. You know i mean they look at least in new york they look like factories right these big <laughs> brick buildings and what you do is you move a kid from one room to another and they're going to become social studies experts in 201 and in 301 they're going to learn math and you move them around like people like 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 cans on a conveyor belt and at the end of four years they're supposed to be educated um then you get teachers trained by people in colleges who've never been in a classroom. I, I have two graduate degrees in education um, and I think I took maybe three courses that taught me anything I needed to know. I drove a yellow cab in Manhattan for five years on and off. I learned more in that fucking cab <laughs> that helped me as a guidance counselor than I did in a classroom. Yeah. Um
0: well this gets me kind of thinking just about how much we're not being served by our our broader academic structure anyway because i think we're we have so much and it's it's not a condemnation of higher education but it's it's that we don't we 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 prioritize and idolize and lift up Academia at the cost of all of the kinds of practical know-how that you would have gotten in that cab.
2: Well, Betty had practical know-how. If I had to serve as an apprentice in education for three to five years before being thrown into a classroom of thirty-four kids and given a textbook yeah. and said, "Teach."
0: Did you have to get a master's degree uh, when you were while you were teaching? Was that part of the expectation? Well, I mean you to maintain your employment
2: uh the answer the short answer is yes um in march of 19
0: 19- i asked because i wonder if that's really something we need to expect of teachers if they really need to have a master's I would, degree if, 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 an if i was the
2: education god i would redesign the entire training system quite frankly I, I i would train teachers more the way i would train plumbers than the way they're being trained apprenticeship apprenticeship I, I would give the principal absolute power to fire anybody in their first three years. When I was a guides counselor, one of the things I'm proudest of is that I spoke explicitly to kids, not only about the technical details of sex and condoms and all that stuff, I talked to them explicitly about my sexual life, that I was married, that I was monogamous, that I never cheated on my wife, and I was probably getting more and better sex than anybody else they knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in many, many schools. I was the official condom distributor because there weren't that many people who felt comfortable distributing condoms to kids. Um, mm-hmm. So I got the opportunity to talk about sexual relationships to lots and lots of kids, and. Making the, you know, my message always was, you know, look, if you're going to have sex, you have to be responsible. And exploitive sex isn't, I mean, it's not the way to go. The way to go is to have sex in a loving relationship, for it to be an act of love, not an act of use and abuse. And I would talk to kids about this, Kids who had never heard anybody talk to them that way.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that was really I'll
2: tell you. I'll tell you a quick story that, that brings tears to my eyes. Um, when I was a counselor in the 80s, uh, I had two occasions to bring kids home to live with us for about six months. Kids who would have ended up dead, in jail, whatever, who were really good, bright, nice kids who needed that extra structure and support. So one of these kids was a kid named Vaiman Biggs He came to live with us when Corey was about 13. Yeah. And he lived with us for about six months and thank God it worked, he graduated high school, went on with his life and I didn't see him again for about two or three years. He showed up in my office on a Friday afternoon uh, with this duffel bag and an army uniform and said look I'm, I'm 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 deploying to germany on monday can i come and spend the weekend with you guys i miss you yeah so i said sure Weim, you know I'm you know i'll take you home i'll bring you back to brooklyn on monday when i come back to work no big deal um and before we left we're having breakfast on monday morning he said you know there's a book in in your son's room where i'm sleeping can I take it with me to Germany? I said, sure. Well, you know, what book? To be a Jew. It was the book we used to give to kids on their bar mitzvahs. The synagogue would give them a present, To Be a Jew um, by Donut, I think it is. It's like a handbook of all the stuff you got to do to be a Jew, a good Jew. So I said, sure, Vehman. Are you considering, yeah, are you considering, uh, you know, converting? He said, no, 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 but there's a chapter in there about how to be a good husband. Yeah. Mm. He said, the only time I've ever seen anyone treat a woman the way you treat your wife is in your house. And this Mm. chapter describes what a man has to do to be a good husband. And I want to learn that. Mm. Now... I may have been the only person in these kids' lives who was that kind of a role model for monogamy, for faithfulness, for love. Um, you know, that's very important to me, that I was able to do that for kids. And I think I did it for my own kids. They're both, in in 2021, in marriages that are like 25, 30 years I mean, they're both in good, stable marriages. Um, that's a tremendous accomplishment as a father, I think.
0: Did you read that same chapter? No, Veymon took the book. <laughs> 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 you didn't need the chapter. You you lived with the lesson. There you go.
1: Yeah. Veymon <laughs> taught. Talk-
0: Do you feel like you learned that from your dad, though? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it- I see it in my kids now. They 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 learn most about who you are, and they model who you are. You know, so it, I mean, they're they're all at an age where we have these great talks and stuff like that. But more than more than our talks, our talks are really a residual of a relationship and you know, my behavior over the last 20 years. Uh, And my behavior is a reflection of my character. And similarly, at growing up, I think that those things that my father was and is, those are the things that resonated with me at the deepest levels.
2: It seems to me that 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 half of the world if not more, think that there's some kind of conflict between being nurturing and being a, 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 a strict disciplinarian. I happen to think that in order to be nurturing, you have to be a strict disciplinarian when you're a parent or a teacher. I think one without the other is horrible. Um, there's no conflict between structure, high expectations, and love, they go together.
1: Um, As long as neither side gets abused. I feel like there's a lot more to talk about, but one piece of business I want to make sure to cover. Jessica, you are a published author. Can you tell us how to find your book, Crossing, which is a great book. We talked about it on our episode about it.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, aside from the fact that it's right here, it's also on Amazon. Um, it's it, it plays into, I think what it, it's, a, it's called Crossing the Divide, 20 Lessons to Help You Thrive in Cross-Cultural Environments. And it does pick up on a lot of the skills that I can well imagine Ronnie has in spades, um, listening, um, approaching people that are different from you as a student, um, setting expectations about conflict, different cultural uh, settings for conflict, but I really just um, have a thirst for knowledge and understanding. And uh, this was an effort to put it, put it all down and have people have a chance to read it and use the skills here to better their work environments and their uh, professional and personal arcs.
1: It's a great read. Uh, a lot of great takeaways um, crossing the divide. Give it a, give it a look, give it a read. And uh, Jessica is, this is a great, this is great fun. Uh, I've, already learned a lot from you as a journalist so thank you and uh, I hope
0: and did you learn anything new about your dad because that's what I was going for please tell me yes but if you say no then I'll have to come back and have another go I'm
1: gonna have to give this a listen because you know it's kind of <laughs> like you know you, you you've you been on stage so a lot of times when you have you know when you're when you're in the moment you get off stage and yeah. you just I, I really have no idea <laughs> you know so I'm gonna have to give this yeah. a listen when I'm not you know in it uh and can i can i circle back around on that one for you because i hope that this is the start of something uh how does it go what's the last line of casablanca this could be the start of a beautiful friendship relationship
0: or or we could just sing the 70s song by the carpenters we've only just begun (laughs) yeah which is my parents theme song from their hippie wedding in Golden gate park that's awesome
1: all right jessica well thank you so much pops thank you (laughs) Thank you. And thank mom for her uh, little cameo, you know, crossing the stage there with the uh, uh, at, at, at exactly the perfect time. So thanks to send, send love to mom.
0: I got to meet Phyllis. I'm dying to meet Phyllis. Tell her next time she's got to uh, come on too. I don't know if she's as open book as you are, Ronnie, but she's I an open book Phyllis. in a
1: very different way.
0: Phyllis,
2: you know, I'm, I'm not a very deep person. You know, you, you get you, really, you, you don't say, no, not a, what are you talking about? A, you know, you, you, here I am, take me.
0: This is more of this tongue in cheek well, stuff. You know, I'm. I'm fr- you're being a wise ass again, I'm, f- I'm from Come Brooklyn on. and I'm
2: uh, and I'm Jewish and, uh, you know, it goes to the territory. But I, I, I'm i really not very deep and there's not much to, uh, you know, you, what you see is what you get. My wife, on the other hand, it's like peel.
0: Still water. It's like deep? peeling an onion. Okay. And you're never bored, are you? How many years you've been married? We're right?
2: married 54 years. Uh, we've been together 57 years and um, I'm still crazy in love, you know? Mm. I really am, you know, so. And uh, you know, at the age of 74, um, you know, this is the person I wanna spend all my time with. So it's good. God was good to well, me, thanks for I've been. been blessed.
0: Yes, you have been. Thanks for spending a little bit of it with us. We'll we'll let you get back to
1: Phyllis now. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.